do better. Welcome to Do Better Podcast, a digital content hub from Asade, built for minds interested in doing better. You can leave your comments and suggestions on dobetter.asade.edu. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new Asade Geo podcast on Do Better by Asade. My name is Oscar Fernandez, and I'm a senior researcher at Asade Geo. Today's podcast is part of the Asade Geo Exchange series, uh, which covers a broad range of issues related to geopolitics and global governance. In today's podcast, we will address what is arguably the most important collective challenge that humanity is facing, climate change. And to take us through the most recent developments in climate change diplomacy and energy policy, we have with us a colleague and dear friend of mine, Marie van den Driese, who is a senior researcher at the Sadegio. Marie has many fields of expertise, uh, but her work mostly focuses on the interface between energy and climate change, including policy, geopolitics, and global governance. Thank you, Marie, for being with us today. It's a pleasure to share this podcast with you. Thank you. Happy to be here. All right. So uh, let me begin by echoing the words of the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, who delivered his State of the Planet speech a few days ago. Uh, right at the outset, he said, and I quote, uh, to put it simply, the state of the planet is broken. Uh, he gave many figures to back this statement up. Uh, and one of the most striking was that we're headed towards a thundering temperature rise of three to five degrees Celsius this century. Uh, tell us, Marie, how does this square with the goals of the Paris Agreement on climate change, which, by the way, is turning five years old uh, this month of December? Um, well, the, the statement is, is very clear and I think very important. It's a statement of urgency and of urgency with the fact that we are not uh, meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement. Um, so in Paris five years ago, states agreed that they were going to limit the rise in global temperatures above pre-industrial levels to a maximum of two degrees and to make all possible efforts to make it 1.5 degrees. We're talking about levels that are twice that, and that is extremely dangerous uh, when it comes to climate change. Um, once you come to certain levels of warming, uh, you start to disturb Earth systems, um, which are, are, are very, very interlinked. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a question of, of planetary boundaries, which may be pushing too far. Um, so it is, uh, I think it's a very important message. It's a message five years after Paris telling states uh, that more action is necessary and very urgently so. Mm -hmm. This has been a difficult year for the world with the COVID-19 pandemic and its economic consequences. But there must have been at least one silver lining, which is that since many economies went into hibernation or quasi-hibernation, we were able to reduce emissions. Is this the case? Is this what actually happened? Um, well, yes, there was a short-term reduction in emissions. I mean, the world suddenly stopped, which is something that had not previously happened. And so, yes, emissions dropped. Um, the projections that the International Energy Agency made a number of months ago were that emissions this year would be 8% lower than the year before. But, and I need to underline this, this does not mean that our contribution to climate change has stopped this year. It is simply a little bit lower than in other years. The thing is that climate change is a cumulative problem. Once emitted, CO2 remains in the atmosphere for a very long time. 
And so regardless of how much we emit, as long as we are emitting, we are contributing to the problem and will feel the consequences of this for many years to come. Um, so it's beneficial that we have had this short-term drop in emissions, sure. But we've also seen how quickly emissions uh, rebounded. The case of China is very clear. Already in April, emissions were back to pre-pandemic levels. And we see, for example, that emissions from steel production in China have actually exceeded pre-pandemic levels. So when economic recovery comes, the risk is that emissions also recover. And this means we'll remain on the path that we've been on for such a long time. And that path is dangerous. It's a dangerous path that urgently needs to be decarbonized. Uh, can we say that when countries restarted their economies, they did so at the expense of green policies and they did not take advantage of the economic opportunities that energy transition offers? Well, um, it's not possible to simply turn a switch and have a decarbonized economy, right? So econ energy emissions, they're baked into the way that we currently operate. Um, they're baked into the way our companies, our markets, our economies operate and the way we move around. So it's not an easy question to address. Um, many countries have considered green goals uh, that require a reduction of emissions when designing their recovery policies, and the EU is definitely a leader here. Um, some 30% of next generation EU funds are destined for spending on climate goals. So it has been taken into account, but not by all countries equally. In fact, progress is lacking in many countries. I think we need to differentiate here, um, however, between the short term, the midterm and the long term. In the short term, when the economy restarts, it's likely that it will restart in a similar way to before. But what needs to happen is that policy must be put into place very rapidly to change that. And the good news is that with the investment that's available and the technologies are, that are available, it makes it economically viable to do the same things or similar things, but with much lower emissions. So the message is basically that the economic recovery can be green. There is a way to combine an economic recovery and green goals, but of course, it is not simple. So apart from uh, COVID-19, uh, this year brought us at least one development uh, that is unquestionably good for the fight against climate change, uh, which is a change in the White House. Uh, Joe Biden was elected president of the United States, and he pledged to bring his country back to the Paris Agreement on the day one of his presidency after the Trump administration withdrew from it. Uh, what do you make of this commitment, Marie? It's it's definitely an important commitment, and um, it shows the priority uh, that President-elect Biden is placing on, on climate change. Um, the situation with the U.S. leaving the Paris Agreement uh, was was really quite quite a blow. Um, so the Paris Agreement is the first uh, climate agreement of this type that all the countries in the world had signed, and I say all the countries in the world, even war-torn Syria, ended up signing this agreement. And the only country that left it uh, was the U.S. I mean, that's that's just very significant. So it's important. It's very important that. Um, and that he returns the U.S. to this negotiating table, to this forum. Um, absolutely. And, and I think that another signal of the importance of this is uh, that he's appointed um, Kerry as his U.S. envoy for, for climate change. Kerry is a person who is well respected in, in climate circles, particularly in the international climate circles. He was engaged with the Kyoto Protocol. He was engaged with the Paris Agreement. So it's, it's a signal of trying to restore trust of, of the U.S. in these kind of UNFCCC negotiations. 
negotiations in these climate negotiations. It is very important. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, and I do have to put a caveat here, um, this is the second time that the US has uh, negotiated a climate agreement of this type uh, and then has left it uh, in one way or another. And so I, I do think that countries uh, have become more clear on the fact that this can happen again. Uh, and so it's going to be difficult, I think, uh, important and difficult uh, for, for the US to regain the trust of, of its partners. I think also that um, that other countries uh, are starting to, to adapt to that and they know that how to work um, more without the US. It's something I imagine we'll discuss a little bit further on in the podcast as well. So just to, to recap, I think it's a very important decision, um, but even more important is going to be restoring trust and of course implementation at the domestic side of things. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned the important appointment of uh, John Kerry as climate envoy. Uh, can you take us through the other promises and other gestures that Biden has made with regard to climate policy, either during his campaign or later as president-elect? Sure. So um, I think one of the very important ones is um, the commitment in his platform to uh, commit the U.S. to climate neutrality by 2050. That's a big deal. Um, that in that he'll be joining a club of uh, recent announcements of countries that are planning on committing to climate or carbon neutrality. The, EU, the EU was one of the first uh, with this ambition to be a climate neutral uh, continent, the continent, sorry, by, by 2050, and others have recently joined, China, South Korea, Japan, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, uh, again, significant to, to make this kind of commitment. It's not an easy commitment to make either, uh, and it's, it's, um, it's a necessary commitment to make. Um, Besides that, he also committed to increasing uh, spending on green goals, let's say, to, to very high amounts. Uh, two trillion was the number that he mentioned. Now, I think I, we do have to talk as well about, um, again, and I'm bringing up the national side of things, how this is all going to be implemented. So if Biden were to have a clear majority in the House and in the Senate, it would be fairly easy, fairly, fairly straightforward to um, to implement all this. But if he ends up with a divided House and Senate, it's going to be a lot more difficult. Um, he has also a lot of ground to make up for uh, with all of the efforts that, uh, that the previous administration has made to deregulate uh, climate change. And so um, I think we need to look both at the external and the internal dimension of the US. Uh, its return to climate diplomacy is very important. Um, how it manages to, in, to implement these, these green goals, these climate goals internally will be a struggle. And I'm sure that the, um, the transition team is thinking very, very strongly about how this can be done. Mm -hmm. um, let's rewind for a bit uh, and let's look at the last four years of uh, Trump's presidency. Uh, there is a sense that uh, his presidency was catastrophic for the fight against climate change. Uh, but how did the US actually do uh, in practice? Did some states manage to counteract Trump's policies? Uh, did market incentives maybe accelerate the adoption of renewables despite Trump's efforts to uh, protect even the most polluting of fossil fuels, which is coal? Well, uh, let's see. Mm, on the one hand, so uh, I think what what Donald Trump did, uh, which has been particularly harmful with regard to, to climate policy, has been an extreme effort of deregulation. So there's a, a counter, um, I think, managed by the New York Times, along with a number of institutions, about the deregulation effort. And there's already 104 
rollbacks that have either been completed or in progress related to climate, to environmental regulation. Um, restoring all of that is, is going to be difficult because they've really tried to um, go deep and to even um, remove root and branch some of these regulations to make it harder for them to, to restart, let's say, in, in the future. This is true. This is important. Uh, for example, when it comes to methane leaks, et cetera, et cetera. However, at the same time, there was already an ongoing trend in the US towards a less intensive, emissions intensive, for example, power sector that has continued um, despite Trump's promises to restore coal, make coal basically king again, as you said, the most polluting energy source. That has not worked. And why? It's simply for economic reasons. Uh, coal has become uh, economically um, no longer competitive with regard to, for example, uh, natural gas. And that has led the U.S.'s emissions to uh, to decrease in that sector. Um, so so in, in a nutshell, uh, there's been a lot of efforts to, to deregulate. Uh, on the other hand, there are certain market trends that have continued the US on, on a path to some decarbonization, though obviously not enough. Um, and I think that internationally speaking, what we've already discussed before, um, taking the US out of Paris was a blow, which I think that countries, the rest of countries actually did manage fairly well, uh, could have been worse. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so you mentioned before one of the um, catchphrases maybe of this uh, 21st century, which is which is going to be climate neutrality. Uh, can you explain uh, a little bit what this concept really consists of and how technologies are advancing in this regard? Uh, is carbon capture and storage the only option at our disposal in this sense? Hmm. Climate neutrality is a huge term. Uh, there's two terms I think we should be looking at, which is carbon neutrality and climate neutrality. They've been used varyingly by, by certain countries. So carbon neutrality, for example, has been promised by China, South Korea and Japan, I believe. Climate neutrality is what the EU and the US are committing to. And that depends on whether you're planning on getting to net zero all of your greenhouse gas emissions or just your CO2 emissions. CO2 is, of course, the largest contingent, but it's not the only gas that contributes to climate change. Um, and the idea of climate neutrality or carbon neutrality is to bring that level of those gases to net zero by a certain year, whether it's 2050 or 2060, depending on, on the country. Now, with regard to the technologies to do so, uh, there I would say that it depends on the sector. So, for example, in the power sector, we've all heard about the rise of renewables and how they become competitive with many other electricity generating sources. And so I think that that there um, we are moving quickly towards being able to decarbonize more and more uh, this sector. It's not complete. There's still many hurdles to go for many reasons, which I think we probably don't have time to get into at this point, but it is on the way. The issue is in other sectors where um, Progress is a little bit slower, where we probably still need some more technological development, more market incentives uh, to get uh, the technologies into place. And so carbon capture and storage in that sense is one of the technologies, but there's many others as well on the table. And the sectors that we're talking about here are transport, among others, um, which is uh, where the emissions are still growing in many, many countries, uh, including the EU, um, or industry which uh, often requires high levels of heat for its production. And that's a very difficult thing to, to decarbonize. So among many others, those are some of the sectors where a lot of progress is still needed. Um, climate neutrality is a, a tremendously important uh, target. Getting there will still require some major efforts as well. Mm -hmm. 
Let me go back now to the speech that UN Secretary General Guterres gave recently, in which he mentioned that more than 110 countries have committed to achieving carbon neutrality by the year 2050. China is responsible for the largest share of emissions in absolute terms, not in per capita terms. And the government uh, recently announced the target of carbon neutrality by the year 2060. How big is this news, Marie? It's huge. <laughs> and let me state that very, very clearly. It's huge for multiple reasons. Um, the first one is that, as you said, China is the largest emitter. It accounts for nearly 30% of the world's emissions. So it cannot be overstated the size of this <laughs> announcement, okay? Um, the second reason why I find it to be extremely big is that China made this announcement unilaterally by itself, somewhat unexpectedly even to many in the climate community on the occasion of the UN General Assembly. Um, and that's, that's a really big turning point. Um, historically, when it comes to climate policy, climate cooperation, um, it has been important to have uh, many countries together, specifically the countries that started emitting uh, greenhouse gases before, such as Europe and the US. Uh, these needed to be on board to make those kind of big announcements. Uh, China, for example, when it came to the Paris Agreement, it was the US and China that together announced their climate commitments, and that was a big deal. So now, five years on, see China moving on its own in this issue is extremely significant. And I think it can mean many things. It's a signal towards the world. It's a signal also domestically, most likely. And it's a signal, I believe, that China thinks that it is possible and necessary to do so and beneficial because I think that they are seeing uh, that the economics of doing this makes sense. They probably want to become a leader, they already are, in certain technologies in this transition. And so it's an extremely significant move that I think that many other countries, um, as Guterres already highlighted, are, are going to be watching very closely. Mm -hmm. The COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted that China is able to make quick and effective policy adjustments but China's dependence on coal is well documented. Do you think that China is going to be able to overcome this coal dependency and move towards this carbon neutrality goal? Well, uh, that is, of course, uh, a difficult question. It's a, it's a question that uh, other countries are also wrestling with. Um, I think that China is extremely capable of mobilizing huge investments uh, to make big moves, and they generally uh, do not promise something that they cannot deliver. So in that sense, uh, I think that, um, that it looks positive on that front. That does not mean that there are not major challenges ahead. Um, and I think that a lot of this will go through the connection between the local levels of government and the national government, the goals that are set at the national uh, level and uh, the local implementation, uh, for example. Um, and also it will have to do with how China deals with the effect of decarbonization on certain sectors of its population and its industry. Um, and uh, that's something that's that's coming up for, for many other countries as well. But in China, it certainly is one of the issues as well. Okay, so uh, let's move uh, from China to uh, the European Union, which was uh, the first to announce its ambition to achieve climate neutrality as a continent. And uh, climate change has been an area where the EU has consistently striven for leadership. Uh, the Columbia professor, Anu Bradford, coined uh, the phrase Brussels effect to refer to the EU's regulatory power and its ability to project it beyond its borders. Uh, Marie, would you say that there is a Brussels effect 
in climate change policy and diplomacy? It's a great question. Um, the EU has certainly wanted to be a leader in climate change for a very, very long time. Uh, I would say from, from the very beginning almost. Um, and it has done through so through various instruments. It has uh, tried to lead by example. Um, so some of the policies that the EU implements uh, are really some of the most advanced in the world. And you could almost say that a kind of Brussels effect is showing that this is possible, going through the experimentation that is sometimes necessary to design these policies and showing what, what is possible, what is not. And I think in that way, it can be a model uh, in certain senses. Uh, I think another part, an important part of the leadership of the EU in this issue is also um, how it has conducted its diplomacy um, with relation to other states. And so, for example, when it came to the Paris Agreement, uh, its alignment with a group of high ambition countries was very, very important. It was an announcement uh, that was made uh, in the middle of this conference uh, really had an impact. The way the EU uh, relates with other countries on climate change um, is, is very important. Uh, it has relations with a certain countries, African countries, for example, uh, that are important to try to make those bridges uh, when it comes to climate agreements. Um, so yes, that's important. What is important, for example, as well is in its um, trade agreements, it now uh, has the, the commitment to include uh, that a country needs to be respecting uh, certain climate goals, such as the Paris Agreement, uh, before they would sign an agreement with these countries. So that's another, I think, effect that we're seeing. Most definitely uh, on a um, technology side of things, it is also quite advanced. It is showing what can be done in policy and it needs to continue doing so. And I think that now we're, we're at one of these points where it's important to decide quickly on the 2030 goals, which is currently on the table, um, to make a signal towards the rest of the world to show that the EU can, can retain this leadership in climate change. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's look forward to uh, the year 2021 and the COP26, uh, which will take place in Glasgow after having been postponed this year due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, what are countries expected to do in Glasgow? And do you think that they will rise up to the challenge? So COP26 is another one of the, the victims of, of COVID, isn't it? Uh, it was supposed to take place actually um, right about now uh, in, in the city of Glasgow. Uh, it was supposed to be a very important summit five years after Paris, uh, kind of a checkup moment um, with countries submitting new commitments. And it was uh, moved by a year for obvious reasons. That has some downsides and some upsides. So the fact that it was moved by a year means that we at least have clarity on the U.S. administration. Uh, and of course, that's, uh, as we've already discussed, is an important impact. It has perhaps allowed also some other countries to get their ducks in order, let's say, um, because what we're expecting for Glasgow is for countries to submit new and updated commitments. To the Paris Agreement. They made a first set of commitments five years ago, uh, but the Paris Agreement was always constructed as a very um, cyclical, um, catalytic arg, uh, agreement. And so the idea is that it should uh, increase ambition by cycles. And that's what we're looking for in Glasgow. We are looking for uh, countries to make clear and ambitious commitments towards climate change to decrease uh, the gap between those goals that were set out that we just discussed at the very beginning of this podcast, that two degree goal, that 1.5 degree goal and the actuality. So that's what we're looking for. Um, I think that the uh, elections in the US and uh, China's new announcement are, are great signals in this regard. Uh, so let's see let's see whether we can continue that, that positive trend in announcements and importantly in action. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think this optimistic tone is a good stopping point uh, for this podcast, Marie. Uh, thank you very much uh, for taking us through uh, all of these developments in climate change uh, policy and diplomacy. And uh, let's uh, look forward to a better year 2021 in this sense. Thank you, uh, indeed. I think it's important to maintain optimism uh, pragmatically and to work uh, urgently towards the action that we need. So yeah. thanks very much for having me. Thank you, Marie. And let's remind everyone that we will continue with other podcasts in this Strategy Exchange series. So stay tuned for that. And to wrap up, let me wish you all a happy holidays on behalf of the entire Strategy team. See you soon. If you still want to learn more, remember, you can register on our platform, dobetter.asade.edu. That was all for today. Until next time, thank you. Do better.